You know, Dad, I've, I've noticed a trend on the pod here. We seem to enjoy starting the show with tales of bad actors in crypto finally getting the justice they deserve. Or at least some kind of justice, because by the time anyone gets arrested in crypto, they've already absconded with tens of millions of dollars at the minimum. Yeah, and they've probably got their secret stash of die stable coins or something. <laughs> they've put it all into Bitcoin. <laughs> but, you know, we've talked a lot about Three Arrows Capital here on the show because that was one of these linchpin finance companies that sort of caused a cascade of failures that we saw not too long ago. And one of their co-founders has been apprehended at the airport today as we record on a Friday. And apparently the co- the other co-founder um, is also has a warrant out for their arrest. And the firm says that they are aware, Three Arrows Capital says they are aware that both one, one founder has been arrested and there's a call for the other, but they have no idea where the other one is. His whereabouts are totally unknown to the firm. They he's say. in Bali. <laughs> he's, maybe he's uh, renting SBF's old place, you know, now that it's vacant and all that. <laughs> 3AC was based in Singapore. The co-founder, Suzu, was arrested in Singapore today. But he had been living there openly. But a few weeks ago, the Singaporean financial authority had sanctioned Suzu and Kyle Davies, the other founder who was likely hiding in Bali, and forbidden them from engaging in any kind of financial activity or financial business in Singapore for nine years. So the arrest is kind of following from an earlier enforcement or a recognition that they've engaged in some financial impropriety in Singapore. So now I suppose we just wait and see if they ever find Kyle Davies, the uh, now unknown whereabouts co-founder. It's going to become another one of these uh, crypto drama stories. No doubt there'll be YouTubers making videos about the entire tale soon. I just hope we get another podcast like the Missing Crypto Queen out of that. This is the Bitcoin Dad Pod recorded on September 29th, 2023. I'm your Bitcoin Dad, and I'm here remotely, as always, with... Oh, hi, it's me, Chris. Welcome back, everybody. On today's show, we are going to cover some bear market news. The Ripple acquisition of Fortress Trust seems to have fallen apart. We have two blog posts from BitMEX, one of Arthur Hayes' classic economic breakdowns, and another complimentary article about the lagged impact of higher interest rates. The theme is, why isn't the global economy falling apart faster? And the answer is gradually, then suddenly, I think. I found an interesting GitHub blog, which contains a interview with a Bitcoin Core contributor who's very concerned about privacy. And there was also some interesting conversation about minor extractable value, which is then covered in a state of the network newsletter about F2 pool engaging in massive MEV attacks on the Stacks protocol. Then in Bitcoin education, we have a Bitcoin optech with a large section on covenants and lightning. It could serve as a way to review some concepts like channel factories and covenants, what they actually are, why they seem to be the next development leap in Bitcoin. And then we have some boosts, and that's our show. Quite the show. And why don't we start with some more shenanigans? Kind of, since we're talking about Three Arrows Capital, we recently covered that Ripple had bailed out Fortress Trust after they had a loss of funds. Well, uh, I think yesterday it was reported that Ripple is pulling out of the deal with Fortress Trust because it turns out they hadn't fully disclosed the nature of their fund loss and the hack was much worse than they had disclosed. 
and Ripple is is out of the, they're pulling out of the deal. They're, they're not gonna they're not gonna buy them. I thought this was kind of interesting because the news is now that Fortress Trust lost between twelve and fifteen million dollars due to this hack, and that it happened because a third party built a payment portal or a account portal for some Fortress Trust clients. So it didn't seem to be a portal to log into your account that everyone was using, but a subset of clients were using it. And then when this third party was compromised via a phishing attack, this portal or integration they had built became a security vulnerability and a maximum of $15 million of Bitcoin was sucked out. So what I don't get is how small is Fortress Trust as a business? I mean, $15 million is obviously a large amount of money for an individual, but in terms of a financial company and previous Bitcoin hacks, I mean, exchanges have lost tens of millions, hundreds of millions of dollars and continued operations. So why is this relatively small loss such a big deal for Fortress? I mean, obviously it shows that they're kind of incompetent and maybe you don't really want to do business with them because it's a it's a messy kind of uh, easy to see coming vulnerability, but this amount doesn't seem material or am I misunderstanding the situation? I don't disagree. It doesn't seem like an insurmountable amount of money for a company supposedly their size. I guess it does show us how thin they're working with margins there. The CEO of Fortress Trust, I guess, I just Fortress just to keep it short, responded and said that they're going to be focused on pure B2B and institutional global businesses going forward. They're going to be looking in ways to diversify into business to business customer as well. They say they're super excited about their tech and their customer base, and they're going to stay on the current course. I guess I just wonder if this means that businesses like Swan are going to continue with attempting to create their own custody solutions, or if Ripple backing off means that they don't need to go there and open that can of worms and they can no, I continue think it makes it exist. more. I think it makes it more urgent. Oh, because right? Fortress is so bad that even Ripple doesn't want them? Exactly. Now, the interesting little nuance here is it appears that Ripple will remain an investor to some degree in Fortress. So maybe Fortress is still getting some money that way. But I would think this means that now Fortress has to make fill that hole themselves to some degree. It makes them more brittle. And it means that Swan is in a more precarious situation. In a weird way, Ripple moving out, now pulling out, pulls out a leg of stability. And so I think they have to double down on their whatever plan they have to, I guess they're going to get licenses in every state, nor they're going to try to acquire a company to have licenses in every state. But you know, you know how long that will take. And you know, they'll be damn lucky if it doesn't get fought at some point. So, you know, they're ambitiously saying they think by Q2, they're going to have most of the licenses of in Q2 of 2024 is what uh, they said on Twitter. I'm skeptical of that because we have watched companies like River and others spend years, years trying to get these licenses and only get like to 30-ish so far. It's a precarious situation for the Swan team. I guess a financial startup in the Bitcoin space is a very difficult thing to pull off. Yeah. I want them to be able to pull it off, though. There's really no other DCA solution that really advocates and and channels the users into self-custody like Swan does. And I think that is a really important element. I'd hate to see something like that go away because if you do it like from the app, the whole process is really straightforward. It makes onboarding into a, into a semi-safe Bitcoin investing strategy really straightforward if you're okay with KYC. And they truly have lived up to their word of making it as easy as possible to self-custody that on an automatic basis. That's a good business. I like that idea a lot. And there's a good customer demand for that. And I think that's going to be a growing one. 
But this stuff just is so got to be sorted out. I, I'm rooting for them, though. I, I think their intentions are in the right place. I think it's just such a tricky space to navigate. And then the other aspect of their business that has made this complicated that nobody in the Bitcoin space seems to talk about is they offer the IRA solution. And an IRA has very specific requirements about if the person, I think, managing the IRA, they can't be the custodian or something to that degree. It's it's a complicated legal precedent when you're doing IRAs. And that comes out of 200 years of financial shenanigans in what we now describe as traditional finance, because in previous frauds involving stock market accounts and company shares, many of which happened in the early 20th century or the 19th century, the pattern that emerged is that when you have the brokerage custodying the assets that they're trading, they can basically commit massive amounts of fraud that's pretty undetectable until after the fact. Whereas when you separate the custody of customer assets from the kind of management and the execution of financial strategies, now the custodian is checking what the brokerage is doing. And the custodian will get in trouble if they facilitate the brokerage's fraud. And they also do not benefit from that fraud. So it creates these incentives that results in better financial compliance. And this is also part of the history of financial compliance in the US in that it's not like the SEC and financial regulators have 100,000 agents who are running around with you know spreadsheets and magnifying glasses checking everything preemptively. 99.9% of compliance is self-compliance. It's always been that way because this is very complicated. And I think evidence of that is if you've ever followed a white collar criminal proceeding, it's incredibly long, it's incredibly complex, it's expensive to prosecute because they're relatively complex crimes. I mean, financial crimes, crimes involving manipulating assets on balance sheets are relatively hard to prosecute and do discovery on. So you need a setup that just encourages everyone to self-regulate in a way that keeps shenanigans to a minimum. And that model might be good for crypto businesses too, maybe, but it's also very difficult to execute because at least the SEC is very hostile to Bitcoin and crypto mainstreaming. And so there are elements of the US government that are just throwing sand in the wheels of these crypto assets becoming fully integrated into this legacy KYC institutional financial setup. And I think perhaps the SWAN team's logic with their, we're the front end, we have, you know, a licensed, totally legit, regulated custodian, supposedly. That idea of a model sounds compatible with like a hundred years of financial law precedent. And I could see them hedging on a model like that thinking when the regulators do come into the space, and I've actually heard Corey express this opinion. He believes that when the regulators really, really get into the space and are looking at custodians, Rivers model won't hold up to scrutiny where they're mining, they're holding, they're selling, you can stack there. Like he thinks that won't hold up to regulation and scrutiny. We'll see if that's true or not. River has admitted it could be a potential vulnerability, but they think that just requires new legislation because they're a new type of business. That's often the opinion of a lot of the coins out there too. So we'll see if that holds up. But I think Corey's team and over over at Swan thought this was the hedge. But now this model we're we're learning is even more fragile than the memes have led us to believe. And it's a tough position to be in because I think the business idea is sound and I think it does serve the Bitcoin community to have a system that is easy to link to your bank account. And, you know, the clever thing that Swan does is they they say, okay, how much do you want a DCA? Do you want to do it daily, weekly, monthly? What do you want to do? So say you set up a $10 DCA, right? Well, it'll do a single ACH transfer. 
ahead of time to get that money over. And then it'll clear sooner too, right? And then it does the purchases for that period of time. And then once everything clears, it it can auto sweep it to your private wallet. That's a system and it's a product I'd like to see more of. So I hope they sort this out. So their business becomes successful. And then we see other competitors enter the space and try to be even more feature rich and maybe try to up it all by putting it on lightning. I think there's there's more that can be there if there's a good competitor to the Swan business model. But first, Swan's got to be successful and prove it works before anybody's going to bother. I agree with you entirely. I think that one issue with our current model of legacy finance is that there's been an accumulation of rules surrounding financial compliance that were written before the digital age. And now that they have to be enforced in a more complex digital environment, they've made it such that incumbent financial institutions have such an advantage because they already have this infrastructure. They don't need to pay to spin up compliance that it's really led to a super high cost of entering into regulated financial business spheres. One example is the requirement to record and maintain communication. Basically, uh, before email and digital word processors, there were requirements that uh, certain financial firms and banks maintain internal communications about when they were discussing customers or when they were discussing various strategies. And so this meant that you couldn't say anything illegal in these communications, but they were very formal because they had to be typed up in a typewriter. You know, it wasn't like a casual email or a text message. And then with the Enron scandals, all of those internal emails that sounded so bad that were all about, hey, let's uh, turn off the power in California to drive up our um, our power rates or something that we can charge. Those came out. And now firms have to track every email, every text message. Uh, there was a recent settlement against some banks from the SEC that issued fines, I think totaling over a billion dollars because some bankers were using WhatsApp and Signal to communicate. And this these messages weren't logged. So you can see how rather than having to track, you know, maybe a couple hundred printed documents a year of internal uh, communication. Now we're talking about gigabytes of digital files that need to be tracked. It's an entirely different uh, level of infrastructure and cost to maintain compliance there. So what I'm just getting at is that legacy finance is a mess. And so trying to find a third party to take care of that compliance for you and just provide you with a payments API and stuff that you can plug into, like Swan has done with Prime Trust and now Fortress Trust, incredibly reasonable. Unfortunately, there are risks there, as we've seen from the Prime Trust losing access to some crypto wallets and now Fortress Trust getting hacked through a third party vulnerability. Let's talk about the other side of the network. I was having a really great conversation with the wife um, because I pulled up the Clark Moody's dashboard and I was like, look at this, honey. Look at all these numbers. Look at all these metrics. They're all up. The only thing that isn't up is the only thing external to the Bitcoin network, which is price, the USD price or whatever your local currency is like that. The Bitcoin network has no control over that. But when you look at the Bitcoin hash rate, it is remarkable. I mean, just this year, we've seen incredible increases, something from like uh, 250 exahashes to now around 400 exahashes in Q3. So just in this year, like we've just seen a ginormous increase. But also, I think people are reflecting on the impact that the Antminer S21 that we mentioned last week is going to have on the mining landscape because it's just going to bring a whole lot more horsepower. And this whole bear market, we have just seen more and more hash rate go in. Also, side note, we have seen the renewable sources of energy for Bitcoin go up. Bitcoin's renewable sources are increasing even while the hash rate is increasing exponentially. And this is all before the halvening. These are the things when I look at Bitcoin that I kind of find to be a little exhilarating. Absolutely. The data around Bitcoin is tremendously bullish. And 
before we get fully into the price, we can just look at the network data from Coinmetrics State of the Network newsletter, which I think is a really good read, and I read it every week. There's an interesting phenomenon that they highlight with regards to F2 pool, which is one of the largest Bitcoin mining pools. F2 pool is mining zero-fee transactions. And the presence of zero-fee transactions means that either they are receiving an out-of-bound payment for these transactions through some other mean, like a credit card payment or cash in an envelope, or these transactions are for themselves. And in fact, it seems pretty clear that these are pool transactions. They're doing something here. They've given up nearly $25,000 in potential fee revenue in Q3 2023. So why would they do that? I mean, they have very thin margins as a mining pool. And the answer is they're performing minor extractable value attacks on the stacks chain. These transactions all contain an op return output, but it doesn't look like these are necessarily ordinal inscriptions or anything like that. Rather, they seem to be stealing, quote unquote. I mean, obviously they can do this. This is within the rules of the protocol, but they seem to be using the Stacks protocol in a way that Stacks did not imagine. And as a result, they seem to have been able to claim over $400,000 of Stacks token rewards. So this is minor extractable value on Bitcoin. This is a problem that's become so pronounced on Ethereum that they're attempting or they have been attempting to completely re-architect how they do consensus, where they have MEV searchers, they have block proposers, block builders. They're trying to just sort of take what on Bitcoin is is a thing we call mining and break it up into multiple different parties with different incentives. And hopefully that kind of controls this MEV-seeking behavior. Because while MEV is very good for the mining pool, it's not necessarily good for users because these transactions there, there's no fee, but they're showing up in blocks. And I think that this is a good example to mention maybe drive chains and the concerns around that, because Satoshi imagined that every Bitcoin node would be a miner. He didn't anticipate that mining would be such a potentially profitable activity that you'd have specialized hardware. And so you'd get this different class of user. Miners are not like normal Bitcoin users because they're like normal Bitcoin users, but they also can mine. And now that you have these users that are a bit different, they now have kind of different incentives. And so I think this is the part of MEV, the heart of the concern around things like drive chains, because the security assumptions of layer two protocols have to take into account the fact that some users are also miners. And these users that are also miners have different incentives. They can do different things than users who have to pay miners to mine transactions. So how are they making money from that? I don't know if I follow. Basically, these op return transactions begin with an X2 prefix, which indicates that they are proof of transfer transactions. So Stacks is a altcoin that uses proof of transfer from Bitcoin or something to do consensus. And so by analyzing the op return of these F2 pool transactions, you can say, okay, they're doing a Stacks transaction here. So then is the Stacks user funding through a fee? Is that where it's coming from? Like where does the revenue come from? For F2 pool, they're getting Stacks tokens. When they do this, okay, they've got a Stacks wallet that's getting Stacks tokens, which they can mm. then dump. Okay. Yeah. And okay. my understanding is that Stacks is kind of an eternal ICO model. Like when you send Bitcoin into Stacks, everyone who has Stacks tokens then can like take a portion of that Bitcoin. And then when you take Stacks and you send it into some 
coin you build on stacks and everyone with stacks token gets some of that coin you know it's it's like this sort of uh, shells within <laughs> shells kind of thing that they do i gotta get in on that sounds great sounds sounds great you talked about it once before we started this podcast you talked about miami coin and that was when yeah, I, yeah, I heard yes, that right. and I was like, I need to talk to Chris. This is when I was like discovering that the, that the politicians were like getting in on the crypto craze stuff and that we were getting city coins. Yeah, that was, a, that was blowing my mind at the time that it reached that, right? Because I had tuned out completely from all that. And when I tuned back in, I was like, what? <laughs> this is crazy. And uh, I watched it. I watched that Miami coin go up and up. I watched it start and climb and climb and climb and then pop and then go way down. Although that mayor still claims he takes his paycheck in Bitcoin. He's still claiming he does that. But not Miami coin. So he's even bailed on his <laughs> coin project. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah. <laughs> he's just buying Bitcoin with his Miami coin all along. Well, check out the linked newsletter. Really interesting if you want to get into on-chain data on Bitcoin. And I think they, I mean, they definitely cover other chains too. Is this Arthur time? Oh, I guess it's Arthur time. Now, this is the moment where dad reads Arthur Hayes, so we don't have to. And this is actually an older Arthur post. But what I like about it is it's still absolutely fresh in the sense that you and I are beginning to sound like Peter Schiff or that Zihan guy who tells his YouTube audience every week that the CCP is about to lose control in China and everything's going to come crashing down because <laughs> we're curmudgeonly perma bears who think that we've always been in a recession. And if we're not in a recession now, we're going to be in a recession soon. We're just so economically negative. Yet at the same time, 20% of Americans who were polled recently say that they're planning on traveling outside the US. So are they going to be traveling outside of the US when they're financially hurting? No, no, of course not. I also just saw an ABC News poll uh, last night that said 20% of Americans say the economy is doing well. So, you know, there's a there's some people out there that are actually doing pretty good right now. It's always a weird aspect when you can like see the writing on the wall, you can see the direction, the trend line, everything, the math. But there's always like you always say, Dad, it's such it's such a micro universe, the economy. There's always something that's really hard to predict. And sometimes war and things like that are good for business. They're certainly good for business for some people. And so I think that it's interesting to think about the idea that common economic sense breaks down when the economy sort of shifts into a different state. In particular, when government debt to GDP rises to extreme levels and when government deficits as a percentage of GDP rise to very high levels, suddenly there are new drivers of GDP. And what I'm getting at is that GDP today is essentially the government fiscal deficit. Because right now, 8% of nominal GDP is the US government budget deficit. So the US government is borrowing and the deficit between US government income and US government spending is 8% of GDP. What this means is as the government borrows more, GDP increases. So if you're in a part of the economy that absorbs government spending, you're going to experience growth or at least nominal growth. And this is very interesting because it also means that if you are a holder of short-term US treasuries, you're receiving five plus percent nominal interest rates on those short-term securities. So you might feel like you're receiving a large amount of investment income. However, if we take a real GDP approach, we need to control GDP for this deficit because simply borrowing money 
and spending it is not necessarily real economic activity because depending on where this money comes from, you know, is it eventually being monetized on the Federal Reserve balance sheet? So the interesting math that Arthur does is he looks at the Atlanta Fed's real GDP unadjusted estimate for quarter three of 2023, and they estimate around 5.7%, which is very high. He combines that with the real GDP deflator, which is another metric that attempts to guess what fraction of nominal GDP is just kind of monetary inflation that can be subtracted. And he combines the deflator with the Atlanta Fed's real GDP guesstimate and estimates a nominal GDP of 9.4% in the third quarter of 2023, which is super, super high. Wow, that's really, really high. But if you take the two-year treasury yield of 5% and you subtract the nominal GDP growth of 9.4%, you end up with negative 4.4% real yield. So what's going on here? This is financial repression. Interest rates on short-term government bonds are 5%. But the thing is, if nominal GDP is 9.4%, then if you wanted a a 0% real yield on your bond, you would need to get 9.4%. This means that even these historically high interest rates in real terms are negative yielding. This is financial repression. If we're in a state of financial repression, then it becomes very difficult to know if the economy is really growing or if we're just experiencing high levels of inflation. That's the TLDR. Because everybody's essentially spending more money, including these large industrial military complexes that are buying up parts and building things and manufacturing things. Everything's costing more too for them. Well, basically, the government is spending the money that other people don't have. And they're essentially monetizing it by issuing debt, which eventually finds its way onto the Federal Reserve balance sheet. And the Fed then prints money into the economy to buy that debt. Boy, this seems like um, a win-win for them. (laughs) You know, like... I mean, what it is, is it's a wealth transfer from regular people to the entities that can print money, which is the federal government. And the numbers that they care about can look good in the meantime while they're doing it. So you can have you can have 100 million or more people that are middle class and poor that are experiencing the harshest economic reality probably of 40 years um, or maybe, you know, at least 30 years. But all the numbers on the dashboard are all looking good. And it's like a win-win for the government. And you're also going to get some relatively high consumer sentiment polling because higher interest rate expense disproportionately falls on the wealthiest Americans in society. And they're going to say, everything is great. Look at all this interest rate expense I'm getting. So the TLDR is totally worth a read because I think when we started this podcast, we were saying the end game is financial repression. The way that you solve a global or at least a national financial crisis is you do a soft default, you close the doors, you stop people from being able to take their paper or digital dollars and move them into hard assets that you can't tax like Bitcoin. And then you tax them with inflation until the government deficit situation gets under control and you hope that the dollar monetary standard survives the experience and we don't have a loss in confidence in this system, which then forces a searching function to some other monetary standard, which would be incredibly disruptive. That, that it all makes sense except for just the bizarre duality of it. So take like war. As the government spends hundreds of billions of dollars to fuel war, that seems like, wow, we're not spending money on the homeless problem. We're not fixing our roads. Like that's the mentality that I think a lot of the voter base takes. 
but you're telling me <laughs> that as a result of those actions, in some way, it's actually making the economic numbers for the United States look good because those rich few are making so much money and the government is now responsible for such a large portion of GDP. It's, <laughs> it just seems like, uh, in a way, the war serves the government in some sense in 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 a, in like a financial in a financial way that is extremely complex like that that they're spending that money and you know we all look at it as inflation creating or we look at it as money getting spent on something that could be spent other places but in a way that a lot of that like probably 80% of that is going to US companies and 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 US pockets the money goes to contractors and and all of that so it's a it's it's a really weird thing where war can actually make a portion of the country much so much richer that i, I think it always has been the case it's just wild. It really makes the incentives for war perverse. And, and it's always been that way in the sense that politics is a political game where different groups in society compete, usually in a nonviolent way, to distribute resources. And so every time there's a war, there are resources that need to be spent and there are people who will get those resources and they might provide uniforms or weapons or food to an army or sell land on which a secret government Manhattan project is going to be built. I mean, there's always a distribution of resources and politics is the way that we do that without having to engage in kind of like violent conflict over resources. And so whenever something happens at a political level, it means that, you know, someone got their way. And that was, you know, maybe everybody got a piece of the pie. Maybe one group is sort of dominating the political process. And so I, I think I'm restating what you're saying. I'm, I think, you know, where we sit in the power pyramid, my only option is to opt out. And it just feels like probably KYC free Bitcoin is one of the only levers I can pull to opt out of the system. And how much that will hedge and protect me from the end results of all of this are yet to be seen. It's just a kind of a roll of the dice, but there's like nothing, there's no other opt out of the system option for me, really. It's it is Bitcoin. And then how, how far out from like the system can you get with if you can do it KYC free. Right. And it depends on how bad things go. Because if we have the current level of financial repression and this is fine, you know, it doesn't spark further financial crises, which I think is unlikely because higher interest rates for longer seem to be degrading the commercial real estate sector, which is then going to blow up portions of the banking system. So that seems like it's going to be a big issue. Obviously, a lot of spending commitments are coming up for the US government, healthcare for, and retirement for baby boomers, which is a very large cohort. You've alluded to the way that the support for Ukraine dealing with their invasion from Russia is very costly. And it's like, it's another line item. So there's a lot of pressure on US government finances. And that means that they need sort of correspondingly, like these finances are healed by correspondingly large amounts of inflation. But the higher the inflation, the more wealth is sort of confiscated from the purchasing power of regular American citizens and holders of US currency, which then creates political pressure and backlash. So there's this feedback loop. And if everything balances out, maybe the status quo can continue. But if things start to break, now new groups need to have their resources donated to this status quo. And that might mean more property taxes because a hard asset that isn't being produced, uh, that, like no one's making any more land. So you know, buying a home or, uh, or land has always been considered a sort of sound financial move to buy a, a, a non-inflationary asset. But you do need to register all of these transactions with some government agency to prove ownership. And that means they're very easy to tax. They're just, it's all registered. It's sitting out there waiting for a windfall tax or, 
or higher property taxes or something. And the same goes for retirement accounts and brokerage accounts and all sorts of regulated financial products. So there may be a future in which it's just politically too costly to go after these traditional stores of value of American citizens and people with assets in the United States. But there also might be a future where that's just necessary because of the financial requirements of maintaining this status quo. So Bitcoin seems to be an obvious hedge around that because it is a financial asset, a money that can be self-custodied, and it is very costly to seize self-custodied Bitcoin because at the very least, you need to undergo a process to request someone to turn over their Bitcoin. And at the very worst, you need to you know, send people with guns to apprehend that person and then like do some research to find out where they've got their wallet. And, and so the cost of compliance for uh, taxing Bitcoin is high enough that perhaps it will be taxed last. Perhaps the lower hanging fruit will be seized or taxed first if we are in some you know, yeah. relatively terrible or, situation. Or you'll just have like our state of Washington just added an additional local state 7% capital gains tax. So you have like the traditional 30%. And now in Washington state where we live, it's 37% capital gains tax. And so you could have things like that where maybe they don't tax Bitcoin specifically, but they tax capital gains more and more. Yeah, absolutely. You know, also taxes like that, they're not necessarily regressive because it depends on when those taxes kick in. Often, depending on the state, you can sort of uh, make $80,000 plus dollars of uh, financial gains before you start paying capital gains taxes. So it's possible that those taxes wouldn't affect most people. And, you know, they start at the sort of the wealthiest uh, and then eventually maybe those caps are lowered and they start affecting more people potentially. It just it, it makes me think of privacy when the situation wherever it goes, if it gets a little dicey. The better privacy practices you implement today for both Bitcoin holders and Bitcoin developers, uh, I think the better you're going to be off if an uncertain future arrives. Absolutely. And there are anonymous holders of Bitcoin and anonymous contributors to Bitcoin. And so we have a GitHub blog post with ZMNSCPXJ, who is a Bitcoin developer you'll see all over the uh, Bitcoin repo, who had an interview with someone named Consent on Chain basically talked about the challenges of being anonymous online. And the advice was very simple. Just use Tor for everything. It's going to be difficult, but just don't forget to use Tor. And that's kind of a, a good basis for privacy online. But also, uh, it's, it's quite amusing because if you are an anonymous contributor to Bitcoin, you can kind of try to contribute and you'll do a terrible job at the beginning and people will be angry at you and dismiss you. And then you kill that pseudonymous identity, start again, and now you're better at contributing and eventually you'll make a contribution. So kind of a iterative process. And I think this gets to the heart of why privacy is so important because privacy is the ability to selectively reveal ourselves to the world. We get the choice to connect all of these contributions to Bitcoin, the bad ones and the good ones, or maybe we uh, we don't want to connect them all. And that gives us an advantage. And obviously there are some issues in that because with privacy comes the ability to you know perhaps engage in scamming. But with the security model of Bitcoin, we don't need identity to do safe financial transactions with each other. We need very little trust, whereas the traditional system requires huge amounts of trust and therefore identity is essential for security and traditional finance. Not necessary in Bitcoin. Well, this episode of the Bitcoin Dad Pods brought to you by my podcast network over at Jupiter Broadcasting. 
linuxunplugged.com. And we have a spicy Linux Unplugged. If you haven't checked it out, episode 529, we dig into the data and figure out where Valve has contributed back to Linux when developing for the Steam Deck. And then we give you kind of a newbie take on the deck. And I've had it for over 400 days. So I give you kind of my long-term review and uh, where we kind of think things are going and probably why you won't see a new deck probably for a couple of years. It's all over at jupiterbroadcasting.com. That and a bunch of other great shows. Check it out. That was such a great episode as a deck owner because it was my fear that I got a deck and then they're going to release the new deck and I'm going to just feel so left out. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. But the Steam Deck is oh, it's so beautiful. It just works so great. And it's all Linux. It's like the Linux thing everyone in Linux can agree on and not fight about. It's so good. It is. It's something we all can appreciate and, and it's something that we all think is a good thing. So I don't know anybody that doesn't. So <laughs> I, I mean, it is honestly that, is a real quality of life improvement because with a baby I had given up on playing video games which I find very relaxing and and fun. I mean I think playing video games makes me a better person to be around if I can do that for a couple hours every week. But with the deck, you know, I'm I'm playing a AAA game and then I just press the power button, pause, put it in its case, fight with the baby a little and then come back and it just you can do it again instead of, yeah. you know, booting yeah. up your gaming PC which requires, mm. you know, 5 minutes or something. It's just and generally, you know, before the deck, my experience with Linux gaming was every game would need a little tinkering. And so if I hadn't spent a little time tinkering, like if the kids just said, hey, dad, let's play this game. And I just did a download install, eh, you know, three out of five times it'd work okay. And with the deck, it always just works. But like you said, too, it enables me to game in situations where I haven't been able to. And for like the cost of a graphics card, you get a comprehensive gaming device. And then I don't have to worry about if I have a great GPU in my other machines, they can just focus on work tasks. So I like it a lot. We get into it though, because it's not just my impressions. Uh, Alex and Jeff also own one. And then of course, there's all the contributions that have gone upstream. It's all really good stuff. It's been great for even people that don't game. I noticed in your notes on that episode, you didn't have any links to like a kit to remove the back panel and then replace it with like a giant radiator or anything like that. <laughs> I did, when I was digging around on Amazon, I did see a few like, you know, like install like this big cooling solution. I just, I don't know. I've never needed that. I don't. <laughs> I, don't I think it'd be it. hard to to hold for a long time because the deck is already pretty yeah. heavy. Yeah, there's that. But I do like the idea of installing a larger hard drive. I could go for a slightly bigger screen. I think I have 256 right now. So, and you can get up to two terabytes, right? With a uh, M.2. You know, a Steam Deck would, you know, with the immutable Linux on there and all, it'd make a good little place to hide some Bitcoin. <laughs> You know, people come and raid your house like the authorities. They're not going to. They're not going to think your Steam Deck's got your Bitcoin. <laughs> and we just messed it up for everybody. Sorry. Oh shoot. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> well, I always thought what would be great about the deck is because it's a little Linux box on there. You know, if you had like a case with a with like an Ethernet adapter or something, it'd be so cool if you could just plug it into the like into a rack and like use it as your console to access the serial connection of a server or um, or something like that. Like, cause it's, it's a small x86 computer just because when I'm in a data center, you know, we have this like cart with an old laptop on it and it's like just a mess to connect to servers physically. But if you, the Steam Deck is so small. So if you had like a keyboard and maybe a connector, you could just have a smaller unit to sort of, uh, you know, do maintenance. It just might be funny to see Steam Decks in like an enterprise environment. <laughs> yeah, I want an all glass Steam Deck, a foldable all glass one, right? There you go. With NFC payment capabilities. Are you describing the Solana phone? <laughs> No, no, it was definitely not. Bitcoin Optech Newsletter 270 has a meaty look 
at a proposal from John Law to use covenants to improve Lightning Network scalability. So there are two concepts in here, covenants and channel factories. And this this all comes from a paper he's posted on GitHub that uh, really gets into the nitty gritty. So Chris, remind me, what is a channel factory? A ch- oh, Jesus, if I can remember. Um... I'm going to take a wild guess because it's kind of fuzzy now. A channel factory sounds like something that spawns a bunch of channels, but that's just going off of my foggy recollection. Right. And I think the idea is that right now with Lightning, every Lightning channel is a single UTXO on chain. So UTXO contributes to chain state. And let me tell you, Bitcoin chain state is a scaling problem because I put a Bitcoin node on my $5 a month VPS. And first of all, the syncing process did take you know at least 10 days and it cooked that VPS. I mean, Linode was complaining. They were like, Jesus Christ, this thing's a 200% CPU. Can you you stop? Like, what are you doing here? And then um, I noticed, oh, wow, you know, this thing only has a uh, 25 gigabyte uh, virtual drive and uh, nine gigabytes of that is the Bitcoin chain state. So like the chain state is the current state of all Bitcoin transactions in the world. Those are all the UTXOs that are ready to be st- ready to be spent. And we need to have that in memory or, you know, in swap or something. And obviously it can't be in memory on a one gigabyte RAM Linode. So it's sitting on disk. So obviously that node is not going to be very performant. But I mean, 9.5 gigabytes is not nothing. And every lightning channel creates a UTXO. Every Bitcoin transaction creates or destroys UTXOs. And the more UTXOs we have, the more chain state. So the idea is a channel factory is a a single UTXO that instead of just two people creating a lightning channel, multiple people can create payment channels with each other using a single UTXO. So obviously you get more bang for your buck out of a single UTXO. Hey, that's pretty neat. So then of course it makes it more economical. Right. And there's a huge number of problems with this. I was just going to ask, there must be some sort of ramifications, right? So many, (laughs) so many. Because now- actually. You know, in Lightning, we get situations where your channel partner goes offline or just stops talking to you because they have an error on their node, or maybe they're a bad yeah. actor. And now your funds are frozen for two weeks, and then you have to still clear the fund, the funds on chain. So you want to involve even more people in that process, and any one of them could just grief everyone else by going offline? Well, covenants might help solve this problem because with a covenant, you can kind of design a new model of a channel factory where you have sort of a professional or semi-professional user who is reliably online a lot and essentially uses a covenant to create kind of default spending trees that can be updated if someone doesn't show up online if you know if someone sort of falls off and isn't communicating then you know you can update the template in a way that doesn't affect the funds of everyone else who is uh, who are online and communicating so the idea is to kind of add a little bit of flexibility a little bit of assurance that a single person or a small group of people in a channel factory can't just shut the whole thing down for everybody how does this make you feel does this address some of your concerns around the risks of using lightning i don't think it really significantly changes the risks i think that a channel factory probably has less security than a standard two-party payment channel 
I think that this is something you would use when fees are very, very high. And I think it's a recognition that there are limits to scaling with Lightning because Lightning is affected by the on-chain fee environment. And so at high values of Bitcoin and high on-chain fees, Lightning does not become a micropayments protocol because Satoshis become very valuable. Yeah, I guess, and I think this kind of goes back to a discussion we often have. I picture Lightning more of a business-to-business solution. You know, like the, and I, I have said this before, it's like the vast, vast, vast majority, vast majority of SMTP traffic is between the top four providers, right? It's not between individuals mailing their SMTP, emailing their servers. Um, And I think that is the direction Lightning goes, just because there are, yes, there are technical solutions to some of these problems, but fundamentally it is a peer-to-peer network. Like everything you've mentioned as an issue is an issue unless you work with nodes and channel operators that you know and you vet. And, you know, yes, thinking of technical issues, but the solution to a lot of these issues with Lightning is social. And um, that is going to only really be approachable by businesses that can engage in business agreements and contracts, uh, which will ultimately be how this gets solved because they'll have the infrastructure, they'll they'll be able to pay for the expertise, they'll need the liquidity because it's going to require a lot of liquidity in the future, and they'll have the business contracts. And it'll be essentially like email hosted by a group of large companies that do the majority of the transactions, while technically the protocol is open and maybe JB always has its own node, like we do actually run a, a little mail server too. Um, and you know, maybe, but we're just what we're in a minority, but it's still technically possible. I think that's the direction. And so when we talk about some of the flaws or risks or, or some of that, I think it, those are only really realized in a, you know, down the road, everybody's on lightning. Everybody's trying to do microtransactions world, which I just don't suspect will be the case. I think it's mostly going to be the purview of businesses like my own and larger. I think that lightning developers agree with you that it naturally centralizes to be a B2B protocol. And I don't think that's an issue. No, I think it opens up the it opens up room for something for everybody else. It opens up space in the in that kind of solution area for another thing to come along in the market and fill that user base need. Right. And as the Bitcoin on-chain economic environment changes, use cases change. And I think we saw this before the Bitcoin scaling wars as well. A whole generation of Bitcoin businesses that grew up in a zero-fee on-chain environment were non-viable when fees became non-zero. And that was that I think became a large component of the big block and then Bitcoin Cash camp. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And unfortunately, this on-chain development prices out some use cases. I mean, Bitcoin for the developing world, well, doing that non-custodially in a high-fee environment, that does seem challenging. Yeah, well, those custodians will implement Lightning on the back end. Uh, I mean, I'm actually very bullish on the future of Lightning because I think it is still very approachable by everyday plebs that just want to run their own node. And I think it's got years left of that and some people could hang on and ride that wave. I think we're still very early in that phase. I think it deserves a lot of attention and focus right now because it's not complete and it needs to be continued to build out. But I think it's going to reach a state of both use, size, complexity, and software maturity where we'll sort of see it drift off into the realm of email and we'll see another solution for the plebs come along. And I'm going to be probably really excited about that because it'll probably have some sort of privacy aspect built in and and more. Um, So in a way, it's like, yeah, some of these things are true, but I am still very bullish long-term on Lightning, mostly because I've used Bitcoin for a very, very, very long time. And I've never had a magical experience like I did with Lightning. You know, the first time I did Lightning and the first time I show everybody Lightning transactions, it feels like freaking internet magic. And there is something to that experience. And to be able to enable Bitcoin on that experience 
is, I think, a bigger deal than we can appreciate because it does the POS demo. You know, you can be somewhere at a point of sales device and you can do that demo or you could transfer value to a friend and it sells Bitcoin right there. And then you could say, yeah, it was for a stupid low fee. And we'll have other technologies to do that. I mean, we technically do already, but we'll have mature adopted technologies to do that. And and Lightning will still play its role. And so in the short term and probably for the next several years, I think it's still a critical technology that deserves a ton of investment. And if you agree with Chris, you can get in touch with the show, BitcoinDadPod at ProtonMail.com. You could also try at BitcoinDadPod on WeaponX, but I have not been on there much. find it really hard to use. The real conversation is in our Matrix channel. Check it out using a Matrix client-like element. Details in the show notes. Now, we do have uh, some booze to get into, and Pitar is back. He is a very big supporter, I would say, of a lot of podcasting Intuitive Initiative uh, podcasts out there, and podcasts are doing value for value. And he has shined his generous light on us with 100,001 sats using Fountain. And he says, congratulations on episode 100. Looking forward to adopting Bitcoin 2023 reports. Oh, man. For a second there, before I read the last of that sentence, I thought we were going to get to see Pitar at adopting Bitcoin. And that just about blew my mind because he's a boost celebrity. He really is. Pitar is sort of like a boosting godfather. So it's great to see you. And thank you for the boost. And I also have to admit that I really disappointed myself at adopting Bitcoin last year because I recorded some interviews and I didn't really know how to record on site or ask interesting questions. And I just, there was some good stuff there, but I just processing interviews, getting them ready is so much work that I just did not release them. And so I felt really bad. I mean, it was interesting conversations. So I hope that the people I talked to didn't feel like their time was wasted. At the same time, it was a disappointment that I couldn't get them out. But now with Chris coming along, we're going to do it right. The discipline I have learned, because I've been in that very position, is you basically add a process from day of. Um, maybe not fully edit them, but you got to label them, process them, you know, categorize them, take your notes all down, because the more distance you get, the harder the job is. There's so many conferences I've gone to and in cool tours of factories and all kinds of stuff where we have footage and audio, but we just don't have the hours and hours on the other end to do the work. Because when you're gone at an event and you get back, there's so much to do. You've been gone for a week or two. It just, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And when I get back, I have to just like hold a baby for three days straight. You know? so <laughs> yep. I'm, I'm very excited. And I actually am going to be quite excited because I think I'm going to be able to test drive a semi-new work laptop for it, a Lemur Pro. Oh, so oh cool. Yes. Jordan Bravo, who's in a McDuck row of sats. Is that what we call it? A row of yeah. McDucks? Yeah. Row of McDucks, 22,222 sats. Chris, sorry to hear you didn't find many sellers on RoboSats. It must have been a slow day. I use it regularly, and the liquidity is usually pretty good, in addition to being able to buy and sell sats for fiat. RoboSats also has options for swapping from Lightning to on-chain Bitcoin and vice versa. Look for the curvy arrow icon. Yeah, I've done that once. The thing is with the on-chain swap, there's the fee plus then you have the fee of like usually like a 3.5 or 4% markup uh, above market price because that's just where that's how it is on peer-to-peer -peer exchanges. Um, so then it's like you start doing the math and you're like, man, I'm I'm cutting into my stacks. I'm not buying that much to begin with. And then I'm spending like, you know, 10, 20% of the budget on fees. And I, so what I really wanted was some really cheap lightning, lightning to on-chain or something like that. But yeah, it is tricky there. You want it um, all, Chris. You want it cheap. I do. You want it private. I mean, choose choose one or, or two or something. <laughs> <laughs> Most of the times when I log into RoboSats, 
I see a lot more cells. Uh, that was the one time I'd logged in and I only saw a few. But I am curious, Jordan Bravo, if you're willing to share what you find to be the best payment method, because everything kind of still is KYC. If I do Zelly, Cash App, that's all KYC still. At the end, you could you could track the the transaction amount to a Bitcoin on chain amount at the time. And, you know, if you are a clever well, person, if it's you lightning, figure it out. it's not on chain. Right. But if I so, but if I do, so say I buy $100 in the Cash App and I send that over the Lightning Network to a Lightning address, and then I buy $100 or ish, you know, $80 worth of whatever it is after fees, and I do an on chain transaction, if you have my wallet and you have the Cash App, it's obvious that I use that Cash App to buy those Bitcoin. I mean, it's clear, right? There's, it depends on how much, how much data they have on me, but there is a way to, to line it up, right? Like if I'm going, if I'm going to the trouble of doing RoboSats and taking, letting them take a 4% fee and doing a swap fee, like it'd be really nice if there was just zero connection back to the fiat world. To any kind of bank ACH transfer or anything that's tied to my identity where I initially got those funds. Chris, you're describing BISC right here. Maybe. Yeah, I just don't want to use BISC. It's so awful. I'd almost rather have KYC. It is a little rough. I mean, it is a little rough. It's a big Java app. Uh, I mean, I had a lot of trouble getting it connected to my own node. I mean, if, if BISC is not on the same machine as the node, it's going to have trouble. And that honestly, like, why does it have to be that hard? I, I don't understand. I know that RoboSats takes Amazon gift cards, but that also feels like it's linked. I mean, the gift card thing is such a nightmare. You could buy Amazon gift cards with sats, but then just keep the sats. <laughs> it just doesn't work. I mean, I remember there was a service where you could buy stuff for people on Amazon and then they would send you Bitcoin and there was like an escrow bonding process. What? But like, I mean, it, it just, it feels pretty scammy, right? You're dealing with gift cards and stuff. I mean, this is the kind of stuff where you see someone who's getting scammed online and they're like buying gift cards to send to an IRS agent, you know, on the phone or something. I know I mentioned this last week, but here's my kind of semi-legitimate use case for this. I would like to pick up four or $500 worth of sats for spending in El Salvador. Yes, I could use my existing amount and I probably just will, but ideally I would like to pick up four or $500 worth of sats. And then uh, when we're traveling around and we're in somewhere that in El Salvador that it will successfully accept lightning payments, I would like to use that stash. And I don't want to have to worry about any tax consequences if there's major price fluctuations between when I buy them and when we're in El Salvador. And so because that is a currency there and it's a legitimate currency, I don't want to have to worry about the tax ramifications back in the United States while I'm buying a burger in El Salvador. And so it just seems like if I could just somehow absolutely, you know, cone of silence buy these sats, I wouldn't have to worry about buying a burger in El Salvador. Maybe I shouldn't care about it because in all likelihood, the price will be almost exactly what it is right now when I do the, when I buy them and when I get rid of them. But yeah, there's just something, it's just something that crossed my mind. Like if you're traveling somewhere that accepts sats and you want to buy those sats anonymously. So that way, you know, when you're paying for your hookers and blowing your burgers, you're not doing a taxable event. Is this all at the same time? I mean, that sounds like quite a party. Yeah, man. It does sound like a good, on the beach too. <laughs> Let's do it. The Golden Dragon came in with 8,888 sats. Uh, that's across five boosts using Fountain. He says, I did a quick Google search for those BTC heaters, and uh, it was $199 on HeatBit. That is super cool. Or is it hot? Ah, um, so it's making about 30 or $40 a month. So the thing is, with the HeatBit one, at, a, at $200 is actually, I mean, for a space heater, it's a lot. But for a space heater that mines Bitcoin, not bad. However, that's because they're taking a little bit of a percent at that price. You mine through their pool, and they take a little bit of a cut. If you, uh, and you I can't imagine like, you're making 40 bucks a month for a 199 
yeah, heater. I, I mean, and I don't also, know. but the if, you spend, if you spend up, more, you don't have to. You don't have to give them the split. Like these have to be pretty inefficient machines. I imagine you're making closer to two dollars a month versus. I wonder though, 40. like, does it matter? Um, because yes, the initial cost is very high, but if you're a Bitcoin enthusiast and you're going to be like in the RV, we're going to try to heat as much with electricity as we can, and that's just getting wasted. It be it might as well do something productive, even if it's just very, very, very small portion of distributing the Bitcoin network. As a Bitcoiner, I find some value in investing in technologies that help spread out the hash rate to the plebs. I think we need to make a spreadsheet so we can figure out the expected return on this because it just <laughs> might not make economic no. sense. It's got it. You know what would actually make a lot more sense, especially like in my situation, it would be to find a great price on a used ASIC and then duct that into your furnace. And this is something I've seen people do. And then so you run the ASIC and it pumps throughout your whole house furnace like we have here at the studio. It's a central air. And so instead of burning um, natural gas, you run the Bitcoin miner and the exhaust heat, which is pretty substantial, just kind of flows throughout the house and maintains heat. I think that's a neat. I mean, there's, you know, that, that way you're buying something that's used. So it's not ending up in a landmine. And there, there's lots of ways to do that. I've also seen projects. You can find them on YouTube of folks heating their little pools with the excess heat from their miner. So they've taken out their pool heater and they put a Bitcoin miner in. Right. I think the issue is just that they're pretty loud. So. Yes, yes. You know, that's Although why you buy the heat bit one because and there's um, shrouding. Be. Yeah, there's boxes and companies that specialize in shrouding and, and quieter exhaust fans that are designed to hook up to ducting. They're still like not kind of something you're going to want to run, run in your living room, but it's getting better. He goes on to say, I'm new to Lightning, and it's hard to start with Bitcoin and Lightning when you're first getting going. I found a great contact on Noster that was able to help do a pay what you want for a one minute sat channel for 90, or I'm sorry, a one million sat channel for 90 days. It really helped get me started. We all know that the Fed hates jobs, though, <laughs> talking about the unemployment rate. And he wanted to also throw in some sats towards some stakes. And he finished it out with a snowman boost, which is one, two, two, two. He says, another great show and advice for the mixing. Thank you, Dragon. Always great to hear from you. Really appreciate the support. And if you need a lightning channel, just hit me up. I can open a lightning channel to you. Because oh, just don't do any transactions while we're recording. <laughs> yes, that is my shame. Carol Olean Danner, I think, uh, boosts in 2121 sats. And says, just found you guys recently. Nice and keep going from class of 2017. And has their <laughs> website in there. Yeah, carolandanner.com. And I see some uh, white, white, uh, white paper posters and whatnot on here. This is cool. These are really artsy too. Wow, mixed media on linen canvas. Gosh, that is pretty yeah, interesting. That is. Nice to hear from you and class of 2017. Yeah, God. Boy, does that make me the class of 2013 then? Is that what I am? That's you horrible. <laughs> oh, if, if this were a British boarding school novel, you'd be a prefect, right? You know what's so crazy is uh, this mixer and this microphone I'm talking to you through were all bought with Bitcoin like five years ago now, maybe five, six years ago. It's really, it was it's your $900 microphone. Yeah. <laughs> BTC Realist comes in with 11,101 sats from Fountains. I think Chris wins the bet as long as the comments are said to be in Powell's usual post-meeting press conferences. I can't remember what the bet was. Do you? Right. We we made a bet that Powell would say something. Oh, you're right. We did. Okay, we'll have to figure that out. This is where a transcript would be really useful. I know. I've been working on that. No, I haven't. I've said I've been working on it. What you need, of course, once you get the transcript, of course, then you need a large language model sitting on top of that transcript. So that way you could ask it, what was the bet? Llama, right? Yeah, got to get this... Llama working on there. 
Okay. Well, chat pad interface. And then we could, much, we could, um, we could ask the dad, we could dad, we, dad GPT, what did we bet and win? And dad GPT would just come back with the answer. How much horsepower do I need to throw at this? Does it need a GPU? I mean, what are, what are we talking? <laughs> Probably the more, the better. <laughs> Halleck boosts in 10,000 sats in response to the commercial real estate bet. Oh, I bet it had to do with commercial real estate. Thanks for fact-checking us, Halleck. I really like the idea of putting out a thesis or hypothesis. Oh no, maybe it didn't. This is different. Then looking for events that would confirm or refute them as ongoing discussion over time. Thanks for all the work on the show. It looks like Halleck is telling us to be more systematic in our thinking, and I appreciate that advice. To develop a thesis and then see if it plays out. The one thing is we'd, we'd also still have to try to maintain you know, sort of confirmation bias avoidance, because the one thing about creating those models and those types of things is then you're always constantly looking for things that confirm it. Uh, that's always been my kind of trepidation about approaching it. But I do also like the idea of kind of coming up with a map and a thesis of where this is going and then kind of coming back to zero and figuring out, okay, why did it go out this way or why did it not play out this way? And why? where did we get it right or what did we get wrong? That could be a useful discussion. One thing that I think helped me was since 2017, the bulk of my Bitcoin research was trying to disprove the Bitcoin thesis. I, I was looking for a really thoughtful critique of Bitcoin that would convince me to reduce my position or or give it up entirely. And I think that was a very helpful motivation to like find the anti-case, but I gave up because I just haven't heard one. I mean, there's been a lot of opportunity to debunk Bitcoin and no one has done so in a particularly compelling way as far as I am concerned. So maybe we need to find the next sort of critique that uh, that would really make us think or reevaluate our position. But I think yeah. it's hard after working on it for so long. to, to Yeah, of- and it's an always evolving technology too. So, so we can criticize it does X, Y, Z today, but things evolve over time. And so it's kind of always moving and evolving. Like look at the energy situation. It wasn't, it wasn't nearly as green as it is today. And uh, that for a while was a very um, effective argument, but times change. Throso19 comes in with 2,368 sats. Hey, Dad and Chris, happy belated 100. I've been interested in Bitcoin for a while, and this show got me convinced to put some skin in the game as a hedge against the dollar system. I love the Matrix chat and all the other JB shows as well. Here's to 100 more. Well, thank you, sir. Nice to hear from you in a boost. Thank you so much. Yes, thank you, everybody. We really appreciate the uh, boost. This was a week where we didn't get a lot of boosts, but people stepped up with the amounts. So we still stacked 156,711 sats, even though we only had seven boosters. So thank you for those of you who stepped up this week. You really you really made the difference. And if you've been thinking about boosting or it's been a little bit, please consider doing it because we love hearing from you and getting a little value in there also kind of continues to motivate us to work hard, cover some of the costs, and, uh, you know, helps the dad family stack, of course. So thank you very much for boosting. You can do it with a new podcast app at podcastapps.com. Fountain, Podverse, and Castomatic are very popular. Podfans is coming along. We'll be in public beta soon. That's going to be something else I'm going to recommend people check out soon. But if you're not ready to switch podcast apps, it is nice because then the boost buttons is right there in the app. But if you're not ready to switch, just get Albie. Get Albie.com. You top it off either over the Lightning Network or directly in app. You head on over to the podcast index. You can boost from their website and you can keep your damn podcast app. I will have links to all that in the show notes, of course. And thank you again, everybody who does boost in and supports the show. This has been the Bitcoin Dad Pod recorded on September 29th, 2023. I've been your Bitcoin dad and i'm here remotely as always with me chris thanks for joining us and we'll see you next time